Amen. I want to talk to you about the pattern of the promise. We're going through the book of Acts and called the realignment. Uh, but the pattern of the promise in Acts chapter 2, verse 36. All right, ladies, I have a question for you. Here it is. What is so essential about essential oils? All right, that's our spiritual talk. What is it that's essential about us? Uh, now, Pastor, and I'm, and I'm, I'm flat out, me and Pastor Christian have essential oils in both of our office, gets us through the day sometimes. But what is essential about essential oils? The word essential, it means vital, fundamental, very important, okay? It means like it's necessary. So, for instance, when you're thinking about cooking, there are some things when you're following a recipe, there are some ingredients that you would say are essential. And then there's probably a pattern or an order of that ingredient that makes it work out to be the essential order that you have to make it in. Now you can probably vary on that. And ladies, you probably have your secret little recipes, a little pinch of this, a little pinch of that you don't tell anybody about. So you know, you die with that recipe and it's the world's greatest because mama only knows it's a little pinch of this and a little pinch of that. So uh, think about pizza, okay? Everybody, most like people like pizza. What are the essential ingredients of pizza? If you look in the dictionary, it's probably going to be a, a crust, maybe some kind of sauce, some cheese, and then you can put whatever else you want on it. Those are the essential things that make pizza. If it's not those things, it's probably not pizza. And there's probably an order that you need to put it in. You need to put that stuff on first before you bake it. Are you with me? Okay, so we went up to Missouri just a few weeks ago, and uh, I love pizza here in the South. Okay, I love pizza here in Gina. I'm not knocking anybody's pizza. But there's something called Emo's Pizza in St. Louis. It is unique to St. Louis. It has a special cheese and a special sauce. And some people either love it or hate it. But I'm going to tell you something. It's still pizza. There's things that you can, that it's the essential things. It has the pizza, but it's a different flavor. You know, there's essential things that must be on there. Then there are secondary things. And the Bible is kind of like that in a sense. When we talk about Christianity, there are some things that we call essential truth. There are vital truths. There are things that we must agree on to get the final product. Then there are secondary things to make it a little bit different flavor. I love when LNA Baptist Church comes here and worships with us because I like a little bit of black gospel in my Christianity. And I love the flavor of that. Now, you may not like different things and different styles of churches and ministries. Some of those things that we can agree to disagree on, there are things that are secondary doctrines or secondary truths. But there's some things that make Christianity Christianity. And so when someone says to me, Pastor Heath, what must I do to be saved? That is an essential question. What does a person have to do to be saved? We can all uh, disagree on the flavors of Christianity or what toppings we're going to put on it or what style of cheese and meat and sauce we're going to have. But Christianity is always going to be Christianity. Salvation is only going to be produced one way. All right? Are you with me? Amen. Amen. So Acts 2.38 is really, in Scripture, is one of the most concise verses for explaining what a person has to do to be saved. Let's look. It says, Repent, each of you, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will, somebody say will, will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So this is a powerful verse, but here's a problem. In Christianity today, this verse 
can be one of the most divisive verses, and you who are here in our town know that to be very true. This verse is probably one of the most divisive or divided verses among the type of people who like different types of pizza. Are you, are you with me? Some people like it this way, and some people like it that way, but what is essential here in this verse? What are the essential elements that make salvation happen when it comes out of the oven, okay? So, there's some things we can look at this. Some people want to talk about how we're baptized. Whatever is it, immersion or sprinkling? Is it in this name or that name? How do you receive the Holy Spirit? Is there a baptism? Do you have to speak in tongues? And we're not going to get into really any of that today. So I'm sorry. So some of you who came here ready. But I want to talk to you today about what is essential in this day, to be the church of Jesus Christ that is knocking down hell's door, redeeming people from the pit of hell, like Jude said, hitting the stench of hell, and ready for Jesus to come any second of any day and any hour. Somebody say amen. I want to be the church that is ready for Jesus Christ. And church, it's time to wake up. I think we have been, we can use all sort of things in the world today to divide across many denominational and theological lines. There could be many recipes, but what is vital? I look at this verse and I told Pastor Christian, it's ironic, really it's sad, that the very thing that we're supposed to be united over in the church, Jesus Christ, the Word of God, is sometimes the very thing we use to divide the church. The very thing we're supposed to agree on, Jesus, the very thing that's supposed to unite us together, we can use to divide and fight over what kind of pizza we like to have. All I know is I'm hungry. I just want more. I just want to see God fill up some empty bellies. I want to see some people saved, set free. I want to see some families restored, some kids come out of rebellion. I want to see people used in the power of God in a day when people are looking at every type of supernatural thing. They're looking at TV and entertainment. They're making all kinds of movies of witchcraft and superheroes. They're hungry for a supernatural church Amen. to show the world there is a God who so loved them Amen. and he's provided them the fullness of his spirit. That's why we've called this series Realignment. Because we have an urgent, urgent life and death message. We can't afford to divide. It means realignment means to the action of changing or restoring something to a former position or state. It means that we come back to the principles. It's like, let's go to Italy and find out where they first made pizza. Let's go back to where it really came to be and say, man, that's how it first came to be. And there was a pattern there. There was something that happened that caused a worldwide movement where everyone started eating pizza. And now we're not talking about pizza, but you're following me. There was a worldwide movement where God began to shake the world. And there was a group of, uh, of humble, of imperfect, of flawed, and yes, sometimes divided people. But this group of 120 people within just a few generations had conquered the Roman Empire for the cause of Christ. They had shook the gates of hell. And there was something, something they had that made them the world's most powerful force and that established the church of Jesus Christ when Jesus said, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against this church. Man, there is something in America we need today and that is a revival of what the church is all about. Amen. Are we 
united in the Holy Spirit, and have we received his power? And I just want to say it, it's got to start with me. That's what I want us to say. It's got to start with me. I want to defend the unity of Christ's church, and I want to depend more and more on his power. I want to defend the unity of Christ's church, and I want to depend more and more on his power until he comes. Look with me in Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Let me give you the background. This is the pattern of the promise. Dr. Luke, he is a Gentile companion of Paul. He was with him through many of his journeys, and he's probably the most accurate historian of the New Testament. He wrote a historical narrative uh, called the book of Acts, Acts of the Apostles. But it really could be titled the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And he sees the empowerment and the co- or the commission of the first followers of Jesus Christ. He sees their empowerment and he follows them on how they take the gospel of Jesus Christ from one city to the next city and to the ends of the earth to even Rome itself. And the question is, how did they do this? They had an empowerment of the Holy Spirit that had never before been seen on the face of the earth. They had something supernatural that allowed them to have inspired speech, to stand before kings and judges and rulers and say, thus saith the Lord. They had something that allowed signs and wonders to follow them and confirm the word of God, just like Jesus did. They had his apostolic ministry placed upon them. And they raised up generation after generation who saw the mighty deeds of God, and they began to pass this thing on. And Luke would look at this and say, what was the pattern of the promise? And I'm going to look at it and say, what do we need that they had today? Acts chapter 2, verse 36, we find that 120 followers, first followers, had waited in prayer for something that was promised to them. It was the gift that Jesus gave to his church. And we call it here, Luke calls it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And suddenly, they all began to prophesy by the Spirit's ability. Some of them, actually all of them, began to prophesy in other languages And this day called Pentecost. And all of these Jews from different nationalities had gathered for this feast. They began to gather together and wonder what in the world is going on. And Peter, prophesying in his own language, stands up and gives a really a prophetic sermon, inspired completely by the Holy Spirit, taken over by the Holy Spirit, and begins to preach this message of repentance and salvation through Jesus Christ. And here's what he says in verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and then said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what are we to do? And Peter said to them, repent, each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far away, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept urging them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then, look at this, all those who had received his word were baptized, and that day they were added about three thousand souls. How many know we need more preaching and services like that? Man, where the power of God comes preaching Jesus and thousands of people in one day, one sermon are added to the Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit. And they said, what shall we do? And Peter kind of gives this pattern. So I want us to realign a little bit today to this verse 
in unity. So my disclaimer at this is to say, let's look at Luke's original interpretation as best as we can. Let's agree at the end of this that we're all going to love each other. And we're going to work together till Jesus comes. And let's be humble that we all grew up different. And I may have some internal biases on how I like my pizza. Are you with me? There's different flavors I like. But at the end of the day, we're all wanting to eat Jesus. We're all wanting to partake of that same spiritual food. And we're wanting to see the, lo- the world filled. And John, uh, and First John kind of gives these three things. He says, the spirit, the water, and the blood... All three are in agreement, and I'm going to use that. So the first thing is what Peter says. Here's the first pattern of the promise. The first is the blood. If you want to have salvation, you better first start at the blood of Jesus Christ. There is by no other name by which men may be saved, and that's Jesus. There is the blood that is required for salvation. This is the first pattern. He says you must believe. That means to trust. It means that you trust him as ruler and as Messiah. So he says believe. You must believe he's both what? Lord and Messiah. Lord first means master or ruler. It means that you come to him as the supreme authority of your life, that you realize that Jesus Christ is the only man who ever rose himself from the dead, and by that definition, he must be God in the flesh, that there is no other person who has that kind of power when they face death. So he must be Lord. He must be master. When he rose from the dead, he said, all authority has been given unto me. Now go. He is Lord. He is Lord. He is master. He is Messiah. The word there in the Greek means Christos, or that's where we say Christ. He is Messiah or Christ. That means anointed one. What does that mean? Well, the Bible prophesied of a coming king who would be both priest, prophet, and king over Israel. He would be the son of David. He will usher in an eternal kingdom. He would take over the world and peace would come in and he would rule the nations by a rod and a scepter in his hand. He would come and establish God's eternal throne and all the prophets long for the day when this Messiah would come and call the nations back in. And they said, this Jesus is the one. He is both God. He is both man. And this man died on the cross for you, took your sin, despised the shame, and for the joy set before him, he endured that to graft you in to God's covenant, that now every person who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He is Messiah. He's the only one who could pay the price for mankind. So when you come, this first pattern, he says, you must repent and believe. He is both Lord and he is Messiah. Some people want Jesus to be their best friend. They want to get out of hell card, but they don't want him to be master. They don't want him to be Lord. He wants to be your Savior, but he better be your Lord. He is both Lord and Savior, Lord and Christ. He's Lord. He's Messiah. And what does it mean to repent? He says, you must repent and believe. He's Lord and Messiah. Repent means to turn, to have a change of your mind and of your behavior. It means to be going this direction and turn around 180 degrees and go this direction. It means to give over your will and your care to God. It means to admit that there is nothing I could ever have done to be saved. There is nothing I could ever do to get closer to God. There is no work of man that we could ever do. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians, it is by grace through faith that you're saved. It was completely on God to save you. You 
could do nothing. Even the Holy Spirit said, uh, uh, Jesus said, unless the Spirit draws, you can't even come to the Father. There is a drawing, there is an urging, there is a tugging that Jesus left his throne to come to you. It was his work and his work alone. And it's the only work that can save you and it's the only work that can keep you saved. So repentance is not just that first coming. Paul says, I die daily to remember. Man, there's nothing I can do to even keep myself saved. I'm such a horrible, wretched of a man that I have to trust every day on the power of God. There's nothing of righteousness in me. There's nothing I could ever do. It is only by Jesus. That's repentance. That's repentance. We have to start here. These are initial ingredients that without the blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. It says they were pierced to the heart. Remember that verse in Psalms 51 that it is a broken and contrite heart that God will not despise. You must be pierced to the heart, wounded to realize I, my sin, nailed Jesus there. It was my sin he, he bore on the cross. It was my shame he carried. It was my burden that led him there. And I killed Jesus, and his blood is on my hand. And they were wounded. They were pierced to the heart. They were remorseful for their sin. They said, we are hopeless. We are helpless. What must we do? What must we do? Have you fully turned from not only sin, but religious works? Have you come to believe him as both Lord and Messiah? That's the first ingredient. That is essential. Number two, he says it's not just the blood, but it's the water. Now the word, and we might get into different theological debates here, but the word baptism, baptismal, actually means to immerse. Now, I don't know where you grew up or how you grew up, but that's what the word means. It means to immerse. And the background of it is that in the Old Testament, Gentiles who wanted to convert to Judaism had to be immersed ceremonially. And it was as if because they weren't born into Judaism, they would go down into the water and come back up and be symbolically born again. So when John the baptizer, John the immerser comes on the scene, he begins doing something unique. He begins baptizing both Jew and Gentile, saying, this is something new. When the Messiah comes, he's creating a new family of faith, a new community of faith. This is the day of the end times. This is the day of the Messiah. And Jesus and his disciples begin to immerse people for repentance and remission of sin. And they would come out, and this began a new membership. To leave your old life. Paul says that when we go into baptism as if we have died with Christ and we come up into new life, that it's baptism is the membership to say, I have become a disciple of Jesus Christ and I don't care who knows it. I, my whole life and many of those people in the ancient world had to do it publicly. They left their families and many of them were disowned, just like the Muslim world is. Many of them are converting today on the threat of death because they have to say, I stand with Jesus. There's coming a day in this country where all of us are going to have to make that determination to say, I stand with Jesus. I, I'm unashamedly a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I don't care who knows it. I'm willing to die with Jesus. That's what baptism means. It's a membership into something new that I follow Christ to the death of self. And we can debate physical and spiritual issues, but I'll be clear today. The Bible doesn't teach that you have to be baptized in order to be saved but that a saved person will be baptized. You don't have to be baptized to be saved, but if you are saved, you will be baptized because that's commanded in Scripture. If you love Jesus, you'll follow him into baptism. You won't be ashamed of it. You'll stand proudly and declare it publicly to the world. I will die with Jesus. 
You can go even further and say, well, Pastor Heath, I don't know about that. Well, in Acts chapter 10, you'll note that people received the baptism of the Spirit before they were baptized in water. So clearly God accepted them before they ever baptized. See, baptism is not about the physical act. Even 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21 says that baptism now saves you. It's not the removal of dirt of the flesh, but it's an appeal to God for good conscience. It means that there's nothing in this tank that could ever save you. No, I don't care if it's a stream, a muddy water, if it's a creek, if it's a tank on wheels like what we have here. I don't care what kind of, if it's Avion water, Bela water, Nebo water, Aimwell water, it's the same water. It's all about what you're doing to make a stance to follow Jesus Christ, that I am willing to die with Him to save the world for its sin. I'm willing to go the distance. Nothing of man could ever, ever save us. And so some people say, well, Pastor Heath, what about the name thing? He says, be baptized in the name of Jesus. We might get a little hairy here. Be baptized in the name of Jesus. What does that mean? When we say in the name of Jesus, they said in the name of Jesus, they cast out demons. In the name of Jesus, they heal the sick. When we say that, it means to do something on the authority of another. It means to do it as if you were going to that person in their stead. For instance, if I was to go to Pastor Christian and say, Pastor Christian, Brianna said uh, for you to sell your truck. I'm doing it as if I had actually heard from Brianna, and Brianna told him to sell his truck. I'm going in the name of her to tell him. Now, he knows his wife's voice, and he knows what she's going to tell him to do, all right? But, but that's, that's what it is. When we pray in the name of Jesus, listen to this. You should be praying prayers that Jesus would pray. We say, in the name of Jesus, bless this. In the name of Jesus, in God's name, in Jesus' name, amen. It means that you just said a prayer. You think Jesus would pray. That's a little scary, isn't it? Man, because it's his name. I'm going to the Father on behalf of the name of the Son. And what I do in the name of Jesus is something I feel he would do. So when Peter says, be baptized in the name of Jesus, it means to be baptized into Christ, into the authority of Christ, into the way he did. And so most, let me be honest, most all theologians will say that they were baptizing people like he said in Matthew 28. That he would say, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all things as I've told you. And go make disciples. Now, we can get over all the phrases because like I told you before, there's nothing, nothing, nothing a man can do that makes you saved. In fact, I jokingly say to our, our people who are baptized, you don't know what I'm saying, we're under the water anyway. So it doesn't matter. It's a phrase, it's a word. There's nothing any pastor can say that makes you saved. It's not my prayer that saves you, it's your faith that saves you. It's your declaration of your heart that saves you. Like Peter said, it is not the water that washes you, it's the washing of the Holy Spirit that you by faith have said, God, I'm willing to deny myself and die with you and the Holy Spirit begins to wash your heart. So I don't care what kind of water it is, I don't care what phrase you say. The important is not what you, how you've been baptized, but have you died with Christ? Amen. Have you died with Christ? That's good. If you love Jesus, you've all been baptized into Jesus' name. In fact, the early church history, there's a, 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 something called the Didache, 
And it's something written by the early church fathers and explained how to baptize people. And it shows that they were baptizing in the late 100s, in the early 200s, they were baptizing individuals in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In fact, if they couldn't find running water, they would pour water over someone's head three times just to be sure. So uh, it's not a formula. Are you with me? It's not a formula. It's the action of a heart. Have you died with Christ? There is one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, Paul says. The blood, the water, lastly, is the fire. The fire. There are places that we can all agree. I, I think we can all agree today that you cannot be saved without the Holy Spirit. We all agree today there must be evidence of the Spirit in a person's life. We all agree that when the Holy Spirit gets a hold of somebody, man, their life is changed, and those around them are changed. We all agree today that we need more of the Holy Spirit's power in our life. And we can differ on the baptism and uh, secondary versus initial evidence. We can differ on the tongues of these first believers, if tongues are still uh, available for today. Here's what I know. People on both sides of the aisle love Jesus. People on both sides of the aisle have evidence of the Holy Spirit. People on both sides of the aisle are willing to go the distance to see Jesus come back to this world and save it from its sin. If you love Jesus, if you have Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. Luke says there's this promise, this gift, this baptism. And in Acts chapter 1 through 2, he uses all three of these terms uh, interchangeably. Let me give you just a quick definition of the promise, the gift, and the baptism. He says there's this promise, this free gift. And this is referring to this Old Testament promise that had been uh, foretold by many prophets that in the last days there will be an outpouring of the Holy Spirit like the world has never seen. Ezekiel, Joel, many others told of it. Even Christ himself told of it in Luke chapter uh, 24 verse 49 that the Holy Spirit would pour out on all believers when the Messiah came. Ezekiel said in chapter 36 it would be an internal change of a new heart and a new spirit. And Joel said it would be a prophetic, an outer thing. It would be an outward thing where people would prophesy and men and women and young children, even slaves and free, would begin to be used by God to speak forth things. They have dreams and visions and, and speak prophetically of the things of God. Ezekiel saw it one way. Joel saw it another. And then Christ came, and here's what he said. He said in, to Nicodemus in John 3, it'd be like a wind. You wouldn't understand it, how to control it, how to contain it, where it's coming from. The Holy Spirit comes inside of you. It's like the wind. You can only see the effects of it. John chapter 7, he said it would be like a river springing up within your soul. It would just bubble up from within and pour without you. And so when Jesus says in John 14 that the Holy Spirit is coming and he was with you, but he's now going to be in you. And then John chapter 20, verse 22, right after, right before he ascended, he took his disciples and he began to breathe that same breath of the Holy Spirit on them. They had what Ezekiel promised, that on the inside of them would be a new heart, something changed on the inside. The same breath that breathed life into Adam made them born again with new life when Jesus breathed onto them. There was a new breath that came in for a new day, a new community of faith, a new lineage, a new people, new children of God. Because he was the new Adam and he breathed life into them. But in the same way that Joel said, he said, but wait, wait until you receive the other part, the promise of power. He said that like Joel said, he said it would be something external. He said it would clothe them or envelop them with power in Luke 24. And Jesus called this event the baptism 
in the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, verse 4. You see, there was a breath and there was a baptism. I don't know how you want to make this. I don't know what order you want to put this on your pizza. I don't know what flavors you want to add to it. I'm just telling you, in John, there is a breath, and in Acts, there is a baptism. There is a breath in a baptism, but there is one promise that Jesus provided. There is only one Calvary. There was only one death. There was only one Holy Spirit. There was only one gift, and with that gift comes the fullness of God's Spirit. You can wonder here today, what are the two sides? What are the progressions? Is this two events here, or is this a progression of the promise? What does it mean for us today? I'm just be honest. Luke leaves many things undefined. That's why we have different denominations. He leaves many things undefined. But what's essential? What is essential, church? Do we have the power of the Holy Spirit? There's something essential we need in this world today. That is the power of His Spirit. I don't care what flavor you pick. I just pray you have the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't care whether you speak in tongues or not. I pray you have the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't care what kind of songs you like or what kind of preaching you like or if you like this music or that music. I pray you have the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the essential doctrine of the book of Acts. We need the power of the Holy Spirit until Jesus comes to reach this world. We need power. Luke might say, one author says it this way, he says, Luke might say of modern Christianity, I love this, there are two types of Christians. There are Pentecostals who live in the dynamic relationship with the Spirit, and there are Pentecostals who do not. Because let me tell you something, when you go all back to Italy, that's where they started pizza. That's the beginning. If you are a Christian, your heritage is on the day of Pentecost. We are all Pentecostal. We're not, we're, let's not divide over all these terminologies and let's just say we all have a heritage here in the book of Acts. It all began with the birth of the Holy Spirit on the church and we need something they had back then today. We need an outpouring of the Holy Spirit today in LaSalle Parish, Louisiana in the United States of America. We need revival. We need people to be saved, filled, set free, set on fire for God. I don't want to quabble and squibble over all the different types of things. We just need to get on our knees and cry out to God, God, can you send the power once more? God, just come down one more time. I don't care what happens. I just want the power of God in the church today. This church in America has more doctrine, more education, more money, more discipleship programs, more buildings and technology than any first century church. But what we lack most is the spiritual power to shake the world again. Whatever our differences, we can say for sure, we all need a greater heavenly influence if we're to reach this world. How essential is the power of God in your life? How essential have you made seeking after that power? He says, close with this, he says, you will receive. You will receive. I studied this word out last night. He says, you will receive. And that word, it means to take into your hand. So if I was to say, Joe, receive this dollar bill. Yeah, yeah, good. So that's what you get for sitting on the front row. 
receive the Holy Spirit. It literally means, literally in the Greek, means to take into your hand. You see, there's a gift, there is a promise, there is the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And on that dollar, there's two sides. And some are going to emphasize one side and some are going to emphasize the other side. But if he has taken it, he's received the fullness of that promise. There is only one promise. I don't care what side you want to look at. There's only one promise. There is a breath. There is a baptism of power. But there is only one Holy Spirit. And if you can't have part of the Holy Spirit, you either have all of him or none of him. You either have all of him or none of him. And he can decide how he wants to split that dollar up and some dimes and some nickels and some quarters. He can do with it whatever he wants. It's the same dollar. It's the same promise. It's the same gift. It's the same thing that he has taken from me. But what did he have to do? He had to take it. He had to take it. I grew up in the Assemblies of God background. And for 17 years, I rejected what I had seen in my denomination. I rejected this manifestation of the Spirit. I rejected the power part. And I don't know why I had pride and all this other things going on in my life and secret sin, but I thank God that one day I went to an altar and I totally surrendered every secret thing in my life, every ounce of fear, every ounce of control, and I met God in a way I can't describe to you. I love my children, I love my wife, I've seen, you know, I love the degrees and all the accolades that I've ever accomplished in my life. I love the birth of my children, the day I got married, but let me tell you something. There has not been one event in my life that has been more monumental than that day in that altar on a Tuesday night when I was 17 years old. I don't care what you call it, I just know we need it. We need an encounter with God whether if it's a sonic on stall number four, or if it's in an altar, or it's in your prayer closet, or it's out on the street, in the morning, late at night, in a deer stand, you need to meet God and see his power manifest in your life. We need his promise. But you have to believe it if you're going to receive it. You have to believe that God will meet you there. I'll tell you a little history and I'm going to close. <clears throat> in the late 1800s, again, whatever background you find yourself in, we're all one church, one body, one Christ, one Lord, one baptism, one spirit. In the late 1800s, the Methodist movement had been dying out in many ways. And there was a group of Methodists, holiness, Wesleyan Methodists, across the world began seeing outpourings of the Holy Spirit. Some were in, in the Welsh Revival, some were in South, um, uh, South Africa, some here in the United States. They began writing songs like, Lord, send the power just now. They began writing uh, great lyrics, songs that we sing today in the hymn book of, Lord, would you send revival once again? God, do an awakening. They could see things on the horizon in the world. In the 1900s, we're fastly approaching the industrial era, industrial era. We'd soon be in World War I, be in World War II, Great Depression would come. In 1900, there was a, a Bible school in Topeka, Topeka, Kansas, some of these same type of individuals. They just began to look at the book of Acts and wonder, how come what we see there, we don't see happening in the world today? For many years, 
the gifts and the operations, even the miracles and demons casting out and great things, signs and wonders that we saw so often in the church, early church, had faded away about three to five hundred years after Christ. Tertullian, one of the earliest church fathers, was one of the last people we have to write about it. We'd see many things on the missions field and great things and different saints, but as a whole, we just didn't see it. The church had become religious and hypocritical and hierarchical and people didn't have Bibles and there'd be great movements, Baptist movement, Methodist movement, Presbyterian movement, great revivals that would shake the world. And these people said, Lord, we need you to do something once again here in the 19th century. And then this group in Topeka, Kansas, this Bible school said, let's just read the book of Acts and study it. And they began on New Year's Day, New Year's Eve, 1901, they began to pray all night and just said, God, we want what this is. We want what we see here. And that night, one little girl was baptized in the Holy Spirit with power. And it wasn't very long after that, that that belief that this is still available for today, whatever you want to call it, how you want to label it, whatever you want to say about it, that there was a belief that God still encountered people in a powerful way and changed them to reach the world around them. And from that one little place it went to Azusa Street, it went to all types of churches, all different denominations, many Baptists, many Methodists began to experience this. And just 100 years later, I looked at it this morning, 2011, in the world today there are 279 million people who are called Pentecostals who believe in all types of things, but that they simply believe that whatever happened in Acts is still available today. In just 100 years, less than 100 years, 279 million people have begun to experience this last day's outpouring of God. Not all of them can be crazy. Now, some of us here, we maybe fit the mold for crazy. That's okay. I'm just saying, you'll never experience the fullness until you believe it. I never will receive it till I believe it. But if you have the Holy Spirit, you have all of Him. There is only one promise. There's only one gift. There's only one baptism. There's only one Lord, one Savior. He's here. You have him. If you have Jesus, you have him. And I'm just saying, church, can we just seek after the Lord in these last days that Jesus is about to part the eastern sky? We don't have time to debate flavors and personalities and all the things that could divide us. Can we unite on the things that we cherish most dearly? We need the blood. We need the water. We need the fire of the Holy Spirit like we've never seen it before because there is a lost and dying world. Millions of people are going to hell today. And we need something supernatural in the church in America. And that's all I'm calling us to do. Would you stand with me this morning? <clears throat> Mark eleven twenty four says, Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Sometimes we can major on the minors. To those who grew up and said, well, you must be this way to be saved, or it must happen this way to be saved. Let's not be so prideful in ourselves that we would say that people who have never spoken in tongues aren't saved because that means for the last 1,500 years, God has sent the entire church to hell, including missionaries and martyrs and many great saints of God. Let's not be so foolish and ignorant that our brothers and sisters on both sides don't have the love of God and the Spirit of God in them. We're not here to divide. We're not here to debate. We're to say, God, we need a revival in America today.
We need the power of the Holy Spirit. And I'm telling you today, if He is your Lord and He's your Messiah, if you've repented, if you've committed to follow Christ to the death of self, you will receive the Holy Spirit. You are His child. He's going to identify on the inside of you with this new life, this new breath. That breath is available to tell you, like Romans said, inside your heart you can identify, Abba, Father, that you know that you know that you're saved. You need an encounter with God. Listen to me, Christian. You can't be saved through religion. You can't be saved through a pastor. You can't be saved through a church membership or a letter at a certain church. You can't be saved because you came down to an altar. You can only be saved because you've repented of your sin and you've had an encounter with God that has changed you on the inside, that God has made you born again, alive with Christ. The old man has passed away and something new has become. You need to know that you know that you know that you have the Holy Spirit living on the inside of you. And if you have that Holy Spirit, let me challenge you, Christian. If He is inside of you, He will give you power. He will baptize you in power. He will help you to reach your neighbors. He will tell you what to say. When you pray for someone, you can pray for faith and healing. They can be healed. If He says to cast demons out, He can cast demons out through you. If He says to go give a word to someone, you can give a word to someone. If He says it, you can do it. You just have to believe that God wants to use you supernaturally in this last day. There is a breath and there is a baptism. There is the Holy Spirit within you and there is the Holy Spirit upon you. And you have Him. You can't have part of Him. If you have Him, you have Him. Just step out in faith. Just believe on Jesus Christ. Just believe the promise is given to you. Just believe that God has not withheld any good thing from you. Everything you need is provided in Jesus Christ. All the power you need is given. Church, it's already given. We already have it. We just need to use it. We just need to say, Lord, would you fill us again? Lord, we're sorry for religion. We're sorry for complacency. We're sorry for just going through the motions. We're sorry just to go through another service so we can get home. Lord, we're sorry for not reading our Bibles. We're sorry for not praying. Lord, we're sorry, Lord, for letting a world lost and dying go to hell. We're sorry, Lord, that we haven't believed that the power that we need is available. We haven't relied on it, Lord. Lord, give us again a new awakening. Realign us, O oh God, to the truth of Jesus Christ. There is only one Lord and one faith and one baptism and one spirit. And Lord, we need an outpouring today. Lord, in Gina, Louisiana, in LaSalle Parish, Louisiana, in the United States of America, Lord, today in 2022, God, we need an awakening of the church to shake the gates of hell once again. Lord, we're not here to placate denomination. We're not here to divide over doctrine. We're here to seek and save the lost till you come. God, every